Welcome back to Not Another Whiskey Podcast. Uh, I have the pleasure of uh, having Scott Adamson here, who is, uh, what is your job title these days? I uh, I just know you as uh, basically Mr. Tomatin these days, but I said, <laughs> you, you probably got a formal job title. <laughs> Hi, my job title, my business card is just Scott from Tomatin. Uh, no, that's uh, great to see you. I'm uh, my job title now is Blender and Global Brand Ambassador for Tomatin. Nice, nice. That's a, a very, very good job title, and I think it's um, I think it's fair to say. I mean, you've been around. You seem to have been around whiskey for a very long time, and I don't know how you're doing it, mate. But your uh, your shampoo must be working. You've not gone grey. <laughs> you're looking as young as you always have. What, what's happening? What's your secret? <laughs> Uh, get in, get in young, get out young. That's it. That's it. <laughs> love it. Love it. How's things, mate? All good? All good. All good. Very busy time, but yeah, all exciting. Very good fun. Yeah. What's going on at Tomatin these days? What's happening? Uh, it's been probably the busiest year that I've experienced here. You know, on the Tomatin front alone, it's our 125th anniversary. So there's been a load of buzz and excitement about that. Loads of new whiskies coming out. Um, and then, you know, just, just, uh, this week we've released kind of what we're calling the world's rarest Japanese whiskey, the Shirakawa 1958. So that's one of those ones that I think um, kind of came out of left field for a lot of people, but I've been fortunate enough to work on it for three years. So I'm just glad that I now get to talk about it um, and, and, and say the name to people. So yeah, it's just been, everything's kind of been coming together this year to just make it an absolutely massive year for us. Yeah, before we get into the, the Japanese whiskies, before we get tucked into tomato and things, like you're an ambassador and and whiskey maker, basically. Like how how's how did you get there, man? What what was your sort of journey into that? Because that's a, a very enviable role. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And it's one that I often kind of think to myself, you know, how, how have I got to this point? Um and it's you, you often get people asking, you know, what do you have to do to get that job? And for me, it was really a case of right place right time um i would say a little bit of luck and kind of fell into it so i'm um, i'm from the north of scotland here i'm in our inverness office at the moment but i live up in allness and kind of grew up beside tininic and dalmore distilleries um but never really considered whiskey as an option you know you always knew someone whose dad worked at the distillery or something like that um but beyond that that was my kind of thought of whiskey um I studied Scottish history at the University of the Highlands and Islands here in Inverness. And uh, like most students, you know, between from year to year, you're looking for a job. And for me, it, it tended to be driving a van around the north of Scotland, which was a nice way to spend your summer. Yeah. Um, but coming towards the end of my studies, before going into my fourth year, uh, I thought it maybe makes sense to get a bit of experience in the field that I'm studying. And one of the, the girls that I was on the course with sent me a, a job um, a kind of advert to say that Tomat and Distillery were looking for someone to come in as an intern for eight weeks during the summer and research the history of the distillery. So to go back in the timeline, um, Tomatin really started pushing its single malts as the main part of its business only in 2009 up until that. A lot of its business was the blending side yeah. um, and then certainly the bulk side of the business as well. So it's a big, it's a big distillery, right? I mean, it, it's a decent old thing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a big site, I think would probably be the best way of putting it. In the 1970s, it was the biggest malt distillery in the world. It was making 
12 and a half million litres from 23 stills. Um, Mad, isn't it? That would surprise people, I think. Yeah. And a lot of people might not even know Tomatin that are listening in. You know, they're maybe more familiar with some of the more recognised brands and things. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was... It, it was massive. Everything that was being produced at that time was going to the blended industry. You know, the distillery was bottling single malt around about 100, 100 years ago. But by the 70s, everything we were making was going into your Johnny Walker, JMB, Dewars, into some Japanese whiskies as well, which is now more relevant than ever. But um, it crashed in the 1980s. And since that time, the focus has been on kind of controlling our own destiny, focusing on our own liquids. And that led to us by 2009, rebranding the malt brand. It's, it's been rebranded again in 2016, but where it, it fitted in for me was 2012. They still didn't really know the story of the distillery and, and the story that the brand was going to go on and, and tell. So I, I came in in 2012, researched the history, and uh, on my very last day, our sales director at the time, Stephen Brenner, and our managing director kind of asked me into the boardroom, and I thought it was very much going to be a thanks for what you've done sort of thing. And um, he, he kind of sat me down and said, you know, uh, by the time you finish your degree, we'll probably be looking for a brand ambassador. Uh, would that be of interest to you? If so, we'd like to keep you on a couple of days a week on a part-time basis while you finish your degree. Uh, to which I leapt at the opportunity. For, for one thing, I had fallen in love with whiskey over that eight weeks, but, and the stories and the people and kind of, understanding what was going on in the village around you and stuff like that. Uh, but on the other hand, I just wanted to get out of my part-time job at Morrison's as well. So oh, uh, it's a good the, place to work from a good salad it good, bar. <laughs> it was a good salad bar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyone looking at me will think I've run past the salad bar, uh, but uh, yeah, no, the bakery is also good. So it's a good day uh, as well. I, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, so I, uh, I, I liked the opportunity and, um, Fast forward a year later, I've worked a little bit in marketing, a little bit in production, um, and the, the brand ambassador job's no longer on the cards. It wasn't quite the right time, but there was a job in sales, um, and that's when I moved into the commercial side. So for about four years, I looked after all of our business in uh, Europe. So I was a European sales manager for Tomatin. Um, which led to me meeting a, an old, old colleague of both of ours, James Steiner, over at White and Mackay. And of course, yeah. uh, I subsequently got invited to, to join the team there. And I think that's probably where we met um, yeah. when I was the venture markets manager there. Stayed there for a year and then uh, ended up having a curry with the guys from Tomatin. They mentioned that they're now looking for a brand ambassador. Um, we had a few beers, we had a few drams morning I woke up to a message saying talking about um so went for a follow-up meeting and sure enough uh, that that job was on the table and I was delighted to take it my wife was pregnant at the time so that's when it was kind of also brought up that they would be looking for someone to be involved in the whiskey making side of things as well from buying in casks cask selection blending and such like so um that was just a an opportunity you couldn't turn down i mean it's an incredible brand to represent as a brand ambassador but to be able to work alongside yeah. graham Munson and get involved in making the liquid that's kind of dream come true sort of thing for me yeah and, and that's as those experiences you can't pass up upon and, and you know you may have you may have been afforded that opportunity at white and mckay at some point but you, you wouldn't know right i mean it might have yeah. taken a few years for that to come off so no, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant opportunity. And I remember you talking me through it and just thinking, wow, I mean, 
Brilliant. That's the perfect scenario, right? I mean, getting that technical expertise, not just going out to the markets and talking about the product, but getting into the production side is is really important. And actually, it gives you a huge amount of credibility as well as an ambassador, right? Yeah, I mean, for both par parts of the job, it's really important. So I think the obvious thing is, as an ambassador, to have a technical role is incredible because that's what people want to hear about. It gives you that authenticity. It gives you that credibility. But on the other side of it, as well from the whiskey making point of view being able to actually go and engage with people and find out what people are drinking what the trends are um, how they're responding to the products that you've made that's all incredibly good information to feed back to the team and be able to to make sure that we've got our finger on the pulse and i think that's something that we've done very very well here over the last 10 years or so is being really on top of the trends that are going on yeah, no, definitely. I, de I think, though, as well, if you were being honest with yourself, moving into production is really just a way to get a couple of trips over to Jerez a year on, on the business, no? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd, be, I'd be lying if I said that that was not the case. I'm actually just <laughs> back from a week in Portugal there. with uh, So we work with the, the Symington family over there. So uh, we, we spent some time with them in, in uh, Porto and up in the Douro and then with our... Uh, Moscatel cask suppliers back over in Lisbon. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that that also helps, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's those, those are good trips. In fact, I was chatting to Stevie Martin this morning, and he's right. he's over in Jerez right now. He was sending me a picture of his Oloroso by the swimming pool earlier on. So it's uh, uh, long, good time to be out there at the moment, September. Have you got yeah. Are you, are you going to get out this year? I don't think I'll be getting out this year. No, the calendar is pretty chocolate with just kind of events and things like that. So hopefully into early next year, we'll get back out and spend some time over there. You know, there's nothing better than a, a plastic cup of Tio Pepe uh, by the pool, is there? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Right. And just talking quickly then about Tomatin, because it is a distillery that I don't know as well as I should. I mean, I've I've, I've really enjoyed the Kubokin and the number of times I've been up in Inverness and uh been up at the, the the king's mills and stuff and and blasted away a couple of the the tomatoes i've probably sent you pictures of the ones yeah. i really enjoyed the yeah. most and like for for those who haven't tried it like give us a little bit of an indication like what's the house style like what's coming up from tomato that people can look forward to yeah i mean i think i think one of the real strengths of tomato and i i would argue it's probably the broadest, most diverse range of single malts that you'll find on the market today. And, and, and the reason that I say that is we don't have this scenario where there's other distilleries in the group that play a different role in the portfolio. So we, we start off with legacy that you can find on promotion in Tesco's at £25. It's a 99-point IWSC single malt. It's an absolutely cracking drop of whiskey all the way through to a 50-year-old. And we touch every kind of price point in between. And within that, the spirit, the house style is, is versatile. You know, the, the spirit that we produce today has its basis in the 1970s as this liquid that was used by all the big blenders. So it had to be versatile. Now, we've refined and we've tweaked the process a little bit. So we've now got probably the longest standard fermentation in Scotland. It's 168 hours long, a full week. Um, we've got distillation incredibly slowly in very large, tall, slim neck copper pot still. So it creates this light kind of um, really fruit forward spirit, but there's an elegance, there's a complexity there. Um, 
and that gives us a versatility that our coopers and the guys in the warehouse can then take on and look at casks from around the world and know that this spirit is going to respond really, really well in sherry, in port, in bourbon, in uh, muscatile, and all these wide variety of casks so that even within those age ranges and those price points, there's different flavors and things. And we'll often be coming out with series of, so like last year, for example, we had a French collection which was um, matured in a combat. It was four whiskies, different French cask finish. So you're able to play about with flavor in a way that I think not necessarily that a lot of distilleries can't, but a lot of distilleries don't is perhaps the, the best word for it. So, and then you've got things like Kubalkin on top of that as well, which is our light repeated single malt. So there's, there's so much diversity within the range that there genuinely is a whiskey for everyone. Yeah, I had no idea about that fermentation time. That's wild, eh? That's a long, long old time. So is that is that really driving that sort of fruity character that, that you're looking for? Is that where that sort of flavor is built, is it? Yeah, so I mean, it's a, it's a relatively recent thing for us. So our fermentation in the past, we used to have two lengths. We would have anything that was uh, mashed on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday morning would be distilled the same week. So it would have about the 52-hour mark. Yeah. Um, and that would be the that we would trade for blending parcels and then the spirit that was produced from a mash on a wednesday afternoon thursday or friday morning it would last over the weekend and we would keep that when we opened up after covid uh, again we were only allowed one team of guys in the distillery at a time so the decision was made mash one week distill the next which from the history point of view kind of goes back to pre 1960s style of production yeah. where uh, brewing and distillation weren't allowed to take place at the same time so um it, it kind of gives us a, a really interesting spirit for me going to the the, the tongue room towards the end of that fermentation opening up the washback smells like a solera ice lolly it's got that passion fruit creamy sort of aroma and that absolutely carries through into the spirit and it really re-emerges when the spirit gets to that 20s 30s sort of age that's where we find all of the fruits and tomatoes so um it's going to be really interesting to see how this kind of we've been doing it for i guess three years now is going to come through yeah no that sounds really interesting that's cool i mean uh, that's what you want isn't it from a distillery like that exactly as you say it's like it's versatility yeah. And then, you know, every product you try is so interesting just to see how that distillery character comes through, whether it's a French wine cask or a Moscatel cask, even a port pipe. And I think the one I was drinking last at the King's Mills that I shared with you was probably in a port pipe, I think. And it was absolutely brilliant. I really, really loved it. Yeah, our 14-year-old is incredible. It's um, it's 11 years in refill casks and then three years in Tony port pipes from the guys at Symington there. And it's just jam-packed with jam and fruits and plum and things like that so for me it's my it's my kind of go-to daily whiskey it's a whiskey drinkers daily drinker sort of thing but but going back to your point there i think you know for me the thing that always bothered me was if you would go on tour of a distillery and they would say you know we've been making it the same way today as we did a hundred years ago well first of all that's patently untrue because yeah. your machinery has changed your barley variety has changed your yeast has changed but also if you subscribe to that i'm all for tradition absolutely but i think one of the best traditions in scotch whiskey has been that kind of innovative nature that it's got that constant tweaking and that that refining to get to the point that what you're producing today is better than what you were producing yesterday but still has that house style and i think that's something that our master distiller graham has really kind of uh, nurtured at tomato and so 
the style of spirit that we're producing today is true to what tomatin has always produced but yeah. the way we're going about it just adds a little bit more quality here a little bit more consistency throughout and that's where things like the long fermentation balancing the still how a single malt brand rather than a whiskey for blenders yeah no that's great yeah. so it's good to see tomato really coming through like that as well and i'm definitely seeing a lot more of it and uh, it means you're obviously doing it you're a good job mate <laughs> We'll call it that, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, man. I'll, I'll, you. I'll take all of the credit. <laughs> yeah, well, look, we're we're um we're also really fortunate to have. I mean, you're very fortunate to work on a very rare whiskey. Um, and you explained it brilliantly just before we started recording, actually, around uh, a a Japanese whiskey for a, a forgotten distillery, basically that that you guys have been working on. And um, I'm very fortunate. I haven't tried it yet, but my sample will arrive tomorrow, so I'll. I'll make sure we, we let people know how it is and stuff. Tell us a little bit more about like what's been happening on that front. Yeah, so it's it's a truly, truly amazing story. Uh, it's one of those ones that I've been fortunate enough to work on the project for three years. And every time we learned a new fact, it blew me away. And every time I started to tell people this story, so over the last few months in the trade and things like that, jaws hit the floor. It's, for me, it... Is possibly, in terms of a liquid story, it's potentially the biggest story in spirits ever. You know, when we talk about the big stories, we talk about distilleries being bought over or auction prices. But in terms of a, the discovery of a liquid, this is remarkable. So the story is that um, in 1939, uh, Daikoku Bidoshu, who went on to open Karazawa Distillery, opened a distillery in Fukushima called Shirakawa too much about what happened in those early days but in 1947 it was bought by a company called Takara Shutsu. Uh, Takara have a long history of producing uh, alcohol in Japan in the 1980s they were at the forefront of the Japanese shochu boom you know they had adverts with David Bowie, Sheena Easton, John Travolta they were massive um, and in 1986 they actually purchased Tomatin Distillery so throughout the the 50s the 60s they had their own blended whiskey brands and by the 1970s and 80s, they were buying whiskey from Scotland to kind of bolster the volumes. Um, but the story of Shirakawa is that it started producing malt whiskey in 1951. So it's one of the earliest distilleries in Japan, in Japan to do so. Before that, you've got Yamazaki and you've got Yuichi, and then you've got Shirakawa in 1951. Um, everything they were producing was for uh, King and Ideal, which were Takara's blends. They never released it as a single malt. This this whiskey has never been released by Takara Shutsu as a single malt. Um, and then in 1969, they stopped making malt whiskey. By this point, they're getting the supply from Scotland and they're also turning towards shochu. So Shirakawa only produced malt whiskey for a period of 18 years. It right. stopped making it f five decades ago, you know. Um, anyway, throughout the 80s and 90s, they start focusing on shochu production. And by the early 2000s, the distillery is in a bit of a state of disrepair. So the decisions made to close the distillery and demolish it in 2003, which, you know, looking back now is the eve of the Japanese whiskey boom. But at that time, nobody really knew that that was going to happen. So the logical decision for a distillery like that was to close it. And, and with that, the Shirakawa story, for all intents and purposes, stops. Um, now, the parcel of stock that we have was distilled in 1958 which is kind of the golden era for Shirakawa. It's production at the 
distillery was broken into three periods and this middle period is where you've got an authentic malt whiskey production in copper pot stills. You've got a five-day fermentation with wine yeast, um, but they're still using predominantly Japanese malted barley. They're still using predominantly Mizunara oak casks. Um, in that period, they start to experiment with American oak, but for the most part, it's Japanese oak. This whiskey is distilled in 1958. It's filled into casks. But at some point in time, we don't know when, the liquid is taken out of casks and it's put into ceramic pots. And then as the distilleries closed in 2003, it's moved into stainless steel containers. And these containers are taken to another one of Takara Schutzel's production sites. So over the years, the number of people in the company that are even aware this liquid exists just declines. You know, people move on to other jobs or they retire. So by 2019, when the parcel was discovered, very, very few people in the company know that it exists. Our managing director, Stephen, had grown quite interested in this history of Takara producing uh, Japanese whiskey, uh, had learned about Shirakawa, started having conversations about it. Most of those ended up in disappointment, though, because there was either not a lot of information or it was, ah, there's nothing left from the distillery. But in 2018, he meets a new colleague who says something to the effect of, I've heard a rumour that there is a parcel of Shirakawa left. Um, now, of course, the company had records of this, but the people that actually knew where the records were and things, having a conversation with them was difficult. Over the next year, the parcels tracked down and Stephen goes back to uh, Japan and he's in a meeting in Kyoto and there's a little sample given to him of just this beautiful golden liquid, loads of Japanese characters over the bottle and all that it says that he can understand is 1958 and the conversations taking place about how much stock is left, the strength and things like that, where it was. Um, and Stephen just has to stop the conversation and say, you know, does that say 1958? Is that when that was distilled? And they're like, yeah. And at that point he's blown away because I think Stephen understood quite what we had here. It is the last parcel of stock from Shirakawa. So this will be the only official bottling of this single malt ever released, uh, which is just jaw dropping in and of itself. But being from 1958, it's the earliest known single vintage of Japanese whiskey ever released. There's never been a vintage Japanese malt from earlier than 1958. So from that history, the importance to the category, it gives the earliest insight into what malt whiskey making was like in Japan. And that's yeah. just astounding, really. From, from a distillery, of course, that's that's no longer here. You know, it's, it's long gone. And yeah. um, as you say, even people, I mean, very few people, I'm, I'm sure, will be knocking around that even have a you know, living memory of what that malt whiskey distillery was like, right? That's, that's right. I mean, so I think what I love about this is, I, I, I always love when a liquid leads to a discovery, you know. So for me, you know, tasting whiskey matured in sherry casks led to a love of sherry. But on this one, discovering the whiskey then kind of prompted us to discover the story of the distillery. Up until now, you know, you look at all the Japanese whiskey books and it's got one page written about Shirakawa and a lot of the information's incorrect. So we were very lucky early on in the project to uh, get Stefan van Eyken involved and he's kind of the preeminent authority on Japanese whiskey based in Japan. So he was able to go and uh, spend time at the Takara Shutsu's archives and, and actually speak to former employees. But even the former employees, they worked at the distillery in the 1980s, yeah. by which point it wasn't making malt whiskey. 
anymore. So they were able to tell us what the equipment was like. And, um, and we found a production summary book from the 1990s that told us how the whiskey was made at that time. But yeah, very few people living today remember how whiskey was made at Shirakawa, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a lost distillery. It's a lost story. It's a lost parcel of stock and it's all been found. And that's, that alone uh, should be celebrated. No, it's a, it's a crazy story. I mean, just to, I guess, an analogy to help people who don't know anything about Japanese whiskey, to put it in a kind of Scotch context, it is a little bit, um, you mentioned earlier, it's a little bit like the angel share, isn't it? It's this sort yeah. of distillery that was a, a little blip in history. And, and these are the only stocks that are left. Incredibly rare, super. I mean, they will be valuable, but I think more emotionally than financially, you know, that that for me is more important. Um, and, and how many bottles then have you guys managed to sort of find? Yeah, so from that last parcel of stock, we've been able to get 1,500 bottles, which is a generous parcel. But, you know, when you put it in the context of other rare Japanese distillery, closed distilleries where there's hundreds of casks left, it's it's tiny amount, really. Um, but it, it does give us the opportunity to tell that story around the world rather than just have it released in one market. Yeah, no, mate, that that's so cool. It's so cool. That must have been um, that'll be a career highlight, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, know, I, 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 I was your time and look back and go, wow, that was mad. Yeah, yeah, I, I mind, I mind uh, just about a month or so ago when we actually, you know, this has been kept under really tight wraps for three years because it is a massive story, you know. So uh, a month or so ago, I was presenting it to the Tomatin team who hadn't been made aware of the project yet and I was I just kind of took a moment and said you know from a from an enthusiast point of view getting to try a whiskey like this alone is just remarkable it's 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 like being a fan of the Beatles and finding an album that had never been released or something like that right it's just the epitome of what you want and it also helps that the liquid is astounding you know the, the whiskey is remarkable which hopefully when you get your sample you'll agree with um but uh, yeah, as you say, from the professional point of view, these opportunities just don't exist. You know, nobody gets to work on something like this. So um, to have that there, that's going to be one of those moments. Like you say, you're going to be having a dram when you retire and just go, wow, that's that's up there. With one of, that, that's one of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, mate, no, it sounds amazing. And um, yeah, congratulations to you guys for for digging that one out and uh, for, for being persistent and asking the question and constantly yeah. knocking that door because that's... Uh, that's the kind of thing that can be quite frustrating, especially when you're not based out there, right? Um, yeah. Stephen, your your MD, is it? That was. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of perseverance from Stephen. I think uh, I think it was always a, a dream that there might be some left, but the moment that we found out that there could be some left, it was it was uh, really pressing the issue. Yeah, brilliant, man, brilliant. No, congratulations. Well, look, Scott, mate, it's so nice to catch up, um, and it's great to great to hear what's happening at Tamatin and. Obviously, with the recent news on the Japanese whiskey, incredible, absolutely yeah. amazing, and um, good luck with the the kind of rollout as people get tasting it and people start picking up these bottles because it's a it's a one off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, I'm, I mean, I'm delighted that we're able to host some tastings and things as well. So, uh, we're, we're having a tasting at the Whiskey Exchange, and we're we're do, we're doing some other events with some of the partners we're working on with us. So, I think. Just getting people to try something like this. I'm going to. I'm really going to take a moment to enjoy those those times, seeing people uh, enjoying the whiskey. But uh, no, that's been great catching up, and, and thanks for having me on. Oh, good man. Speak soon, bro. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.